0: You're listening to the feed.
1: This is the feed.
0: This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan.
1: In Stoville.
0: In Woodbridge. In Unionville.
2: Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, the Work From Nova Scotia campaign, small businesses, the fight to survive, and Frisbee golf. But we begin on the front lines. A recent survey from the Canadian Medical Association shines a light on physicians from coast to coast to coast, revealing high anxiety and extreme fatigue among our doctors as year two of this global pandemic has just begun. Joining us to analyze the findings of the survey and the impact on both physicians and their patients is Dr. Ann Collins, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you, Dr. Collins, for joining us on the feed. Uh, thank you for having me. So, physicians polled say that for them, fatigue has increased by 69%. Can you elaborate on that?
3: Well, to say that this last year has been tough would be an understatement. But certainly for those physicians who have been on the front line of managing this pandemic, uh, they are indeed growing weary. They've had to make many adjustments and as well oftentimes uh, in critical situations found themselves being um, substitute family, if you will, for for ill and dying patients. That takes a huge toll on your mental health. Do you think that it affects how they do their job? Look, physicians uh, are programmed, if you will, to Uh, carry out their responsibilities uh, with a sense of of duty and desire to give the best possible care that they can to their patients. But we still have to be cognizant of the fact that physicians were experiencing high rates of burnout prior to the pandemic. And this has only exacerbated that, only revealed many of the cracks in our health system the physicians have been dealing with for a long time.
2: Dr. Collins, 64% of those asked say that they are experiencing anxiety around this pandemic, at high levels of stress.
3: Physicians have been subject to the same restrictions that all Canadians have. They've been isolated from their families. They've been unable to do some of the things that would give them pleasure, that would give them respite. Uh, breaks, for example, uh, vacations from a, from a very stressful occupation. Uh, they also feel, um, because of that sense of duty and care, anxiety and concern for their patients who have had procedures, uh, surgeries delayed, and in some cases, uh, patients have not been presenting to their physicians in a timely fashion with symptoms, and so are sometimes very ill, with non-COVID-related diseases by the time they, um, they come in.
2: You know, the survey shows that physicians, many of them in Canada, are suffering, but it also indicates that very few are seeking help. They're suffering in silence. Why is that?
3: That was probably the most uh, alarming uh, finding out of this survey, Um, And so it clearly indicates that physicians are experiencing barriers, uh, most likely stigma, a feeling of um, they would be admitting to a sense of failure if they ask for help. They may, in some cases, feel that they're letting their colleagues down if they need to step away for a bit and seek out help. Many of the same... Um, feelings that the general population has about seeking help for mental health problems. So to the CMA, that indicated we've got a lot more work to do there, and we need to be prepared past this pandemic to deal with the significant impact that it will have on physicians' mental health.
2: And the here and now, let's talk about the contributing factors. So we've got high anxiety among some physicians in this country. We also see that they are dealing with fatigue and and stress. So what is contributing to that?
3: Well, again, just caring for for sick patients, um, having to adapt throughout the pandemic to different conditions like lack of PPE, Uh, Initially, changing our mode of practice from an in-person to virtual care, in many cases, having their ability to perform surgeries be impacted. And most recently, um, we learned that a contributing factor was um, vaccine rollout. Uh, We know that that has not gone particularly smoothly in the first instance, that improving in some areas now so multiple issues that haven't
2: affected their uh, levels of anxiety. Let's zero in on the the vaccine rollout. In, in many cases, it is being viewed by both physicians and by patients as quite poor in various provinces and really right across the country. I found one of the numbers quite astonishing in the survey. 93% of those asked, of the physicians asked in this survey, have real concerns about the vaccine supply.
3: Um, exactly. Now we have to remember this survey was done close to a month ago now. And I think it would be fair to say that uh, we have had some better assurances um, about vaccine supply, uh, both from the federal government who procures it and, and what provinces and physicians on the ground have seen in their local areas. So that's that's reassuring, and um, and hopefully that will continue to improve over the next uh, several weeks.
2: And you touched on the direction and the priority groups. Now, for instance, I have a 97-year-old father, and we pressured his physician tremendously here in Ontario to find a way to get my father vaccinated. And I know that pressure is coming from so many of his patients, this particular physician. So let's explore that, the priority groups. Is that something that is pressure-filled for physicians, for doctors?
3: Well, we've certainly seen um, across the country that there's been some variation in that. We have strongly supported um, following what the National Advisory Committee on Immunization recommends as as priority groups. But I think you're also speaking to, in in that instance, um, some, what we're seeing, some differences in terms of what the family doctor's role will be in the vaccine rollout. Uh, priority lists are set by public health and and departments of health uh, working together on the provincial level. But uh, where the family doctor fits into that um, has not been made clear in many parts of the country and, and even within provinces in some areas of the province. So that's been an added stress because just as in your case, it is the family doctor that families and patients turn to.
2: You mentioned that the survey was conducted a month ago. Could we do a little what if? So the AstraZeneca concerns, that has been a big problem and a big concern for those of us who know not a lot about it, and that would be the general public, but also for physicians, has that weighed heavily on the minds of doctors in Canada?
3: Well, I'm certain that they've been getting lots of questions about it. Um, it's difficult to answer those questions as we see, as we've seen throughout the pandemic, Information is very fluid. It changes in some instances day to day. And sometimes the the headlines are there before the science actually reaches the position. So that uh, has been a factor. Um, Again, usually within uh, a period of time, some of that is made clearer or there are clearer guidelines. It takes a while for it to catch up, shall we say. But, yeah, uh, messaging, um, multiple sources of information, that that does add uh, when you're already trying to, um, you already have a very busy practice, no matter what your specialty is.
2: And how problematic are the variants of concern? So that
3: is a a great point, and that uh, immunization is uh, a major cornerstone in controlling and containing this virus and getting us through this pandemic. But we cannot lose sight for a moment about the importance of adhering strictly to public health measures. We are all tired of it. Physically distance, wash your hands, keep your contacts small. Um, but these variants are a wild card and they are, are throwing a whole different uh, player into the game, if you will. And so all of those public health measures are, again, front and center uh, to, to managing the, uh, the variants, to managing the pandemic as we've seen uh, over the last year. Dr. Collins, physicians are people too. In your
2: view, how hard is it for them to watch the number of deaths increase when it comes to COVID 19, to see the life altering after effects in some cases of the coronavirus, and also their own per- perhaps personal concerns at some point, at some level, that they are and may be exposed to the virus themselves? There's no
3: question that physicians, uh, particularly who have worked in the hot spots in the country, um, have done so at, at personal risk. Um, you know, PPE has been critical in, in managing that. Um, so, there, yes, physicians are very concerned. This, our legacy from this pandemic is, it will be, uh, sadly, the tragedy that has taken place in long-term care where over 80% of the deaths have occurred. And so that really, we cannot lose sight of that, we cannot forget that as we move out of this pandemic. And there need to be very um, drastic measures taken to, to never see that happen again. And yes, those physicians that we've all seen the pictures in the ICUs where families, essential uh, care providers have not been able to have contact with their patients, with their family members, and physicians have become their family in their, their dying moments. And that, um, that's gut-wrenching. That just, uh, there's just no way to describe that feeling.
2: Frankly, I find the fact that there are high levels of anxiety and increased fatigue among physicians here in Canada gut-wrenching as well. What can be done as a result of your findings in this survey? What needs to be done?
3: So, first of all, we need to get through this pandemic. We need to do get uh, get as many Canadians vaccinated as, as soon as possible and at the same time maintain uh, strict public health uh, measures that, that we've already spoken of. Um, and then we need to be very vigilant and mindful of what the impact, um, mental health impacts will be on physicians, on, on, on healthcare providers um, as a whole and what they will need uh, to support them and to heal them uh, as we move through and out of the pandemic. Dr. Ann Collins, President of the Canadian
2: Medical Association, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you very
3: much for hearing our story. We appreciate it.
2: Like everything else, filing your taxes will be very different this year. Tina
0: Cortez with the dollars and cents. It may be spring, but it's also tax filing season. How do we handle the COVID recovery benefits, old age security, the Canada child benefit? To help us through, the MP for Vaughn Woodbridge and Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of National Revenue, Francesco Sorbera. Francesco, welcome back to 105.9 The Region.
4: Oh, it's always great to be back on 105.9 The Region. Uh... You folks are a great information source for the residents of York Region and beyond, and it's uh, it's always great. And today to talk about tax season, as much as we may want may not want to speak about it, we do need to speak about it because it's important for every Canadian.
0: All right, so let's get to it. The deadline date is April thirtieth this year. No changes, right?
4: Uh, as of the, as of today, as of as of today, there are no changes uh, to the tax filing deadline. For individual filers, um, the reminder is April 30th 2021. That is if you are owing amounts to the Canada Revenue Agency. For self-employed individuals, uh, the filing deadline is June 15th, 2021. So at this time, there is no plan to extend the filing deadline for individuals, but the Canada Revenue Agency is closely monitoring the situation.
0: Absolutely. And as we know these days, everything is uh, rather fluid. Can we still file on paper or is everything online?
4: You you can you have a choice. You can file on uh, using paper, and there are about a, a million plus Canadians that still use uh, the paper copy. And uh, they would have been received a paper copy if they had used it before. Or you can actually call the CRA and and request a paper copy. For the vast majority of Canadians that file their taxes, uh, for literally millions and millions, they do it online. I I recommend that Canadians, um, you know, please do it online. It's very quick. Uh, with direct deposit, you can get, uh, you can receive your refund uh, literally within days and have instant communications with returns with regards to your assessment. It's just much a, a much faster process for Canadians to do.
0: So, in terms of the return, how do constituents report emergency and recovery benefit income related to COVID-19? How do we do that,
4: uh, Tina? That's an excellent question. If if the you know, for for example, nine million Canadians uh, received at a certain you know at a certain point in time, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, they would have received from the Canada Revenue Agency a document which would be called the T4A, and when they would file their taxes, uh, they would obviously then insert this information into their online tax filing or on the paper form as as uh, reported as income. So they would have received a T4A in the mail uh, via the Canada Revenue Agency.
0: Okay, so the T4A is a different slip from your T4 slip.
4: Yes, the T4A is a different slip from from your T4 slip. A T4 slip would be from an employer. A T4A slip would be directly from the Canada Revenue Agency uh, stating the amounts that were received from the various um, benefit programs that we put in place during COVID-19.
0: So many of us are working from home and still are. What changes have been made to the home office expenses deduction?
4: Well, we we brought in a program that recognizes that Canadians, uh, millions of them literally, were impacted and had to work from home during this time, and many continue to work from home. And and what we've said is we've put in place a very simple process. Uh, Canadians will be able to claim a $400 deduction uh, for home office expenses that they've incurred from working from home. It's approximately a $2 a day um, deduction that Canadians will be, be able to claim, up to $400. That is one route. For Canadians that traditionally worked from home uh, and did so in prior years and wish to follow the what's called the T2200 uh, route, uh, they can file that and work with their employers to have, again, what's the, what's called the T2200 route. Uh, put in place and and issued to them to claim their home office deductions. It's a much more complicated form uh, for Canadians, but for those that just have been impacted by COVID, working from home because of COVID, um, expect to return to their office or work locale uh, in the coming months. uh, The $400 deduction has been put in place to assist them.
0: This time of year as well, you know, you hear so much about fraud and scams. How can people protect themselves from those types of scams?
4: well the the first thing is that if you receive a any sort of phone call saying that to the representatives wishing to have your SIN number, Service Canada, uh, CRA, and, and they, they, they seem fishy, they are fishy. Uh, so please uh, hang up the phone, report the number. Um, if you receive an email from the Canada Revenue Agency, it should not be requesting you to link to anything. It should be an informational email, uh, and, and that is, that is it. Uh, it'll be a, an informational email to go to your, your CRA account uh, to access you know benefits or reset a password or so forth. That is the only type of information that, they should, that Canadians will receive. Tina, I really recommend that Canadians, um, you know, as much as we, we tell Canadians to practice good hand hygiene, uh, that they also practice good uh, security hygiene when it comes to password resetting uh, and so forth so that your passwords are reset timely and they don't end up in the wrong hands.
0: So many have seen their financial situations affected by COVID-19. How is the CRA helping people with tax debt this year?
4: Okay, Uh, that is a great question. What we put in place is we know uh, during the pandemic that we did not want to have Canadians choosing between paying rent and putting food on their table. And that is why we, we quickly came out with uh, the, the number of benefits, which were administered and continue to be administered uh, by the Canada Revenue Agency. And the folks there have done a fabulous job. But we've said to Canadians, you know, if you, are, if you have taxes owing on these benefits when you file your taxes, uh, that we're going to give you, you know, a, a year period of time up until April of 2022 if you've received these benefits. And during that time, there'll be no interest or penalties on this taxes amount, uh, taxes uh, owing with regards to the benefits. Um, so we've put in place a number, uh, a number of uh, help scenarios, and, and that will work with Canadians during this time as they return to work, which we are seeing thankfully, uh, and as Canadians uh, get back to their day in lives. So we are there to assist them. Uh, we know we don't want to leave any Canadians behind, and as the Prime Minister says, we do have uh, the backs of Canadians during this most extraordinary period of time.
0: Extraordinary indeed, and it's good to hear because there was a great deal of back and forth when it came to CERB and other benefits. What advice, by the way, do you have for our seniors in the community who are facing this tax season, unusual tax season?
4: Well, the the first thing for our seniors, I would recommend to them and all Canadians, please file your taxes uh, to obtain the benefits and credits that you deserve. Uh, you know, our seniors can only receive their old age security and guaranteed income supplement, and all the benefits that they that they receive HSP credit when you file your taxes. So, so please, 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 uh, you know, reach out to the CRA at the at the one eight three three nine six six two zero nine nine number uh, if you need assistance. Reach out to your local MP. Please file your taxes for our seniors. Um, you know, we've provided them a number of benefits during COVID nineteen and we want to ensure that they are being assisted. They're the ones that built this country. They sacrificed so much, and we want to make sure we're there for them. And, and we have been uh, there for them, and we encourage them, please file your taxes, get in contact with your kids, uh, loved ones, friends, and make sure you file your taxes on time to maintain your benefits.
0: Okay, and one more time, if our listeners need tax help or need more information, where can they go?
4: Um, the information sources I recommend uh, is first the one 966 2099 uh, number for the Canada Revenue Agency. We are uh, being inundated with calls. Uh, we understand that. We're prepared for that, uh, so Canadians uh, may have to wait a little bit longer than we like. To, we would like them to, so we ask for patience on that side. Uh, they can also go to the Canada Revenue Agency website, which, uh, which contains uh, a lot of information uh, for Canadians on their benefits. Um, and please contact your local MP, whether it's myself here in Vaughan Woodbridge or my, my colleagues uh, across York Region. Uh, we are here to assist our, our residents to the best of our ability.
0: That's terrific. MP Francesco Sorbera, thank you for joining us on the feed.
4: You, you are welcome, Tina. I, I, I wish all the residents uh, of York Region uh, a safe uh, and wonderful uh, month of March.
2: Next on the feed, we travel east to Nova Scotia.
1: Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
2: Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Small business has been hit hard by the pandemic, but can it survive, even thrive? Tina Cortez
0: with that story. We know the pandemic has been tough on businesses, big and small. But with vaccines now being rolled out, could it mean that companies will have a chance at survival? To explore this further is Charlie Graves, president of Modus Research. Thanks for joining the show, Charlie.
5: You're welcome.
0: Tell us about your work at Modus Research.
5: Well, this is an independent, uh, Canadian-owned uh, research firm. Uh, we specialize in business research. Uh, we're B2B experts, uh, probably the leading experts in Canada on that. Um, and we've been in operation for just a little under 10 years now.
0: So could you provide the details of a recent survey you conducted about businesses and their confidence level in terms of surviving the pandemic?
5: Certainly. Um, the results from the survey um, are part of an um, ongoing series of surveys that we've been conducting since the start of the pandemic. Uh, this is part of what we have called the Business Monitor, which is a omnibus service. Um, it's run regularly, usually on a monthly basis, and so we've been tracking a lot of information about Canadian businesses and their response to the pandemic. And uh, the results on survival are something that we started measuring back in March April. April and been tracking all the way through and the, the results you're referring to actually include um, three different surveys, one that was done in April, one that was done in October and one in December. And uh, those surveys are all run off of the Modus Business Panel, which is Canada's only scientific research business research panel. Um, it's, um, it's a very high-quality panel we consider to be the gold standard of business research in Canada, and all those surveys have run off of the Modus Business Panel. So tell us about the results. What did you find? Well, there's some fascinating results. When we first went out, uh, uh, Canadian businesses were almost apocalyptic about what was happening um, at the start of the pandemic, which is not surprising. There Mm -hmm. was a a severe lockdown and all the rest of it. You know the story. When we continue to measure, uh, and, and at that time, a lot of business thought they couldn't survive um, out beyond three or six months, and that was quite shocking when we first saw that. And like we had almost half of businesses saying they couldn't survive beyond six months, and. Um, But as uh, time uh, went on, and uh, I think as businesses adapted to the new reality, uh, that changed quite a bit. So in October, uh, there had been a huge reduction in the number of businesses who did not think they could survive out six months and a vast increase in the number of businesses who think they could survive beyond two years. And so, and that got replicated again in December and we do expect it to be much the same today, but what it shows is that businesses have adapted and acclimated themselves to the new reality essentially. Um, And they've done this by uh, a lot of these businesses, by cutting costs, reducing uh, operating costs, and labor costs, and so forth. Uh, But they've adapted. A lot of them have. And it's pretty impressive, actually, to see that, given where we were back in the spring of last year.
0: So they've had to adapt. They've had to pivot, as we've heard, over this last year. Do you think that things will go back to the way they were or we are on a completely different path in terms of our business?
5: It's really hard to say and uh, we're not really in the soothsayer business here when we're doing market (laughs) research but um, I mean my guess is probably as good as anybody's but it's it's pretty clear some other findings that we have from some of this research shows that uh, there's a a very large number of businesses that are not pleased with arrangements such as work from home. Uh, We put out a release a few weeks back showing that a large, like a majority of businesses think that working from home has had a negative impact on morale and motivation. Uh, a very significant number, but I think it was 44%, said that they thought it's had a bad effect on, a negative effect on um, productivity. So my sense is, is that I don't anticipate that hey, businesses are, 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 in the lion's share of businesses are going to want to keep with that sort of uh, an arrangement and they happy to get people back in the workplace. Uh, when when that's possible
0: now what about in terms of advice for other businesses especially those that are on the brink of survival
5: do you have any advice for them it, it's it's hard to impart any advice i mean circumstances are so particular and we we totally recognize that the, the the what is clear from the research that we've looked at is is those businesses that have been able to persevere and move from that emergency category of we're not going to survive three or six months to say now they can survive a year or two years or more. Uh, what those businesses have done is, is a lot of belt tightening and uh, I don't think that's going to be news to anybody as a way to persevere through this. Uh, the other thing that comes out of the research is, is that the companies that have moved into this category of being, feeling that they're much more confident about their survival are also significantly more likely to have taken part in SBA. Uh, I know this doesn't apply to all businesses, but uh, uh, there's a significantly larger number of businesses in the more confident category that have participated in SEBA, and so it appears from these data that um, that that's actually helped them uh, persevere.
0: Now, what about in terms of looking ahead? The spring, the summer, the fall of this year, what do you see?
5: I would expect much of the same that we've been seeing over the last six months. That uh, businesses have been able to adapt to changing circumstances, and ch- circumstances have been changing quite rapidly, back and forth from higher public restrictions, public um, health restrictions, to lower restrictions. And I think they're prepared for that. One of the one really interesting finding that we had in the results that we we've published so far is is that. Um, the businesses, even those who are struggling really badly, those ones who are saying, you know, we're not going to survive out, you know, three months or six months, are, we asked them if, if after the restrictions had been eased, if they were in favour of tightening restrictions. and uh, The vast majority of them said they were in favour of tightening public health restrictions. So I, what that says to me is that they're, they're quite well prepared for what eventuality, most of them are quite well prepared for whatever eventualities come.
0: And what do you think is the one takeaway from this past year?
5: I think think there's a lot of takeaways. Mm -hmm. One of the big takeaways, at least from our perspective as researchers, is is that there's a a, a very high level of resiliency amongst Canadian businesses, including SMEs, um, that a lot of people uh, think that SMEs were going to perish, and some of them are, certainly, um, but a lot of them have done very well and been able to, um, tighten their belts and, and deal with the situation. And to me, that's, that's very impressive, especially relative to what we saw initially.
0: I like that, resiliency. For our listeners who want more information about your survey, your research, where can they find it?
5: It's on our website, and so it's modusresearch, M-O-D-U-S, and all the news is at modusresearch.com forward slash news. And so all of our releases that are out of these surveys that we've been conducting are up there, and people are welcome to uh, visit and inspect and ask any questions if they have them.
0: Charlie Graves, thank you for joining us on the feed.
5: You're most welcome, you.
2: If you can work from anywhere, our question is, why not work from Nova Scotia? Life's better by the sea, and there's never been a better time to live in Nova Scotia. So what I just read is all part of the unique Work From Nova Scotia campaign. Here to explain and explore is former Ontario MPP, now President and CEO of Nova Scotia Business, Inc., Laurel Broughton. Thank you for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Pleased to be here. So first and foremost, what drew you to Nova Scotia?
6: Well there's no doubt and that the sea drew drew me to Nova Scotia in twenty thirteen when our family made the decision to move to Halifax. It really was part of finding a path where we would have a quality lifestyle that we would be able to be close to the ocean and uh, enjoy everything that the East Coast lifestyle has. And so we really have lived that since 2013. And uh, now it's a great opportunity for me to be able to talk about that and encourage other people to think about uh, life in Nova Scotia. So this
2: new marketing campaign is aimed at attracting Canadian remote workers for relocation or longer term stays in Nova Scotia. That's what your press release says. So what does that really mean and who do you think would qualify?
6: So what it means is I think we're trying to focus in on what might be a silver lining from the pandemic that we have learned that you can work from anywhere. Many individuals are working from their homes. They are connecting into their workplaces And that has made them perhaps think about, you know, what they want in their life. And so our focus in Nova Scotia for many years at the Economic Development Agency that I lead is growing our economy, growing our population. And this initiative is to reach out to people who could work from anywhere and we believe will be able to work from anywhere for a long time because we hope we pass through this pandemic and we are all back in our normal lives, but the research is telling us that it's not likely uh, that everyone will go back to the need to be in a workplace. So if you will be able to work from anywhere now and into the future, think about Nova Scotia and think about perhaps relocating for a shorter or a longer time to a place Where you can have the most beautiful Zoom backdrop that you've ever seen.
2: (laughs) Very well put. So, you talk about remote workers, but you also identify lifestyle migrants and digital nomads. Can you elaborate?
6: Sure, so digital nomads, um, actually there's a few websites that are out there where digital nomads are deciding and getting information about where they c- could work. They're a class of remote worker who's really characterized by their propensity to travel, and they do move to different locations on fairly frequent basis and work from there. Lifestyle migrants are another category of remote worker, but they choose a more permanent relocation to a jurisdiction. Uh, where they're pursuing the lifestyle that they want. But they would be moving their families, knowing, though, that their, their job is one that they will do, uh, um, you know, perhaps remotely. And then, obviously, remote workers are also um, those individuals who can work from any location. So we're reaching out to everyone. We're reaching out to Canadians, no doubt, because of the global restrictions with respect to travel. And we are also reaching out in Nova Scotia. We know that many individuals have ties to Nova Scotia, and we run a program uh, that we call Scotians. And we keep in touch with thousands of people who perhaps their grandmother lived in Nova Scotia. Maybe they're an alumni from one of our university, And we know that those individuals in particular uh, have a fond memory of Nova Scotia and may choose to come back and uh, pursue their careers here, um, perhaps remotely.
2: So you described the beauty and the majesty of Nova Scotia. Let's talk about cents and dollars and cents. So the housing market, how is it right now?
6: So we know that according to the Canadian Real Estate uh, Association that Nova Scotia is one of the most affordable places to live in the country. It's one with short commute times. That's critically important for this. Good internet speeds, also critically important for remote work. But I want to assure uh, listeners that we are keeping our eye on the ball on all of those quality of life and quality of environment initiatives. Uh, for those of us who have relocated here for them or others that might, we know that we need to maintain that and ensure uh, that we continue to have a very um, affordable and a very inclusive place to, uh, to live and work. And I think indicating the importance of that, we have a new Department of Immigration and Population Growth. And my own department, um, which was previously called the Department of Business, is now the Department of Inclusive Economic Growth. So I think indicative of the priorities being placed on those important quality of life and quality of environment aspects.
2: How is Nova Scotia handling the pandemic?
6: Well, we have been um, recognized globally in Nova Scotia for the fact that the pandemic has been very well managed. You you might know that, um, you know, various uh, newspaper articles, including the New York Times, have focused on what is this place, Nova Scotia, where kids have pretty much always been in school, um, certainly all through the fall. Our restaurants are open. Um, You know, it's been well managed, and I think it is... um, in part the very strong leadership of Dr. Strang, our Chief Medical Officer of Health, and our former Premier, Premier McNeil, but also a collective sense and a collective sense of responsibility uh, among Nova Scotians that we need to do this for each other and we need to uh, be conscientious of making sure that we keep our economy growing, that we keep our kids in school. Um, our offices are open. I've, you know, I'm talking to you today from my office and my team and I have been able to continue to work um, certainly throughout uh, all fall here in our offices.
2: What about the sense of community? What are Nova Scotians like?
6: Nova Scotians are friendly. They are talkers, and I can tell you when I first moved here, I would be surprised at the lengthy conversations that you might have with someone who was delivering delivering your Purolator or FedEx package, and I've shared this story uh, with people because, uh, you know, I loved my time in Toronto. I enjoyed my time in the Ontario government. But you didn't have a big conversation with the FedEx or the Purolator driver on your doorstep. You basically took your parcel and they they jumped off the step. So the pace is slower. People want to know about each other, uh, want to build those relationships, um, and that is something that uh, I think makes this place very special. From an economic development perspective, uh, we're very relationship-driven and uh, and that's been a pivot for us in the virtual world because obviously we're doing that work virtually now. Uh, but I think, you know, we're, we're, we're talkers and we're listeners, mm-hmm. uh, and we want to hear about each other and hear what they want um, for their, their life and their opportunity uh, to grow their businesses. Here in Nova Scotia, we certainly want entrepreneurs to come here. We want people to bring their remote work here, um, and, uh, and help build the future province uh, that we believe will continue to be a great one. And why is it important that there is
2: uh, more contribution on the part of Canadians when it comes to the economy of Nova Scotia? And that would mean people moving there, relocating there, buying land, buying homes, uh, being a part of the economy of Nova Scotia.
6: Well, the, the province has been focused extensively on the fact that um, they were a province, and, and your listeners would know this because some perhaps are from Nova Scotia, um, that people moved away. People moved away because there was not opportunity here. So it's been a real privilege for me to move here and be part and lead the organization that is about creating opportunity, creating opportunity for new immigrants. And we had record levels of immigration in 2019 before the pandemic for new migrants to come to Nova Scotia, Canadians to come here. Uh, Population uh, was at a record high in in 2020 before the pandemic. And so it's a welcoming place. Uh, We encourage people to come. And uh, we really think that there is um, a great opportunity to start your own business and the world in economic development and international trade is increasingly getting smaller, right? You can talk to anybody, any place around the world. So if you can do that, why not do that from here in Nova Scotia, where you can also have a great quality of life.
2: And let's just before we say goodbye, let's let's talk about that part of it again. You described it at the beginning of this interview, but from your own heart and your own eyes, what do you see when you look outside and you take a look at that gorgeous province, Nova Scotia?
6: Well, it's an absolutely gorgeous sunny day here, and I'm looking out at the ocean, and I can do that, you know, from my office and from my home, um, and uh, it really is uh, one of those things that perhaps you used to see only on vacation, but now you can wake up and see uh, every day. Uh, hear uh, you know the the cannon go off at lunch hour every single day, and think about the history of our country. It's starting, uh, the start of it uh, here at the Citadel in Halifax, and just a great province. And I know so many Canadians that I've been privileged to connect with over the years always say, "You're so lucky to live in Nova Scotia." And yes, we are. And the message of this campaign is that we would welcome others to be here with us as well.
2: Laurel Broughton, you had me at hello. <laughs> if people are interested in finding out more, where should they
6: go? They should go to our website, workfromnovascotia.com.
2: President and CEO of Nova Scotia Business Inc., Laurel Broughton, thank you so much for joining us on the feed.
6: My pleasure, Anne. Thank you for asking about Nova Scotia.
2: So if spring has you in the mood for a little Frisbee golf, stick around. That's next.
1: Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
2: Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer, Aurora, and the move to create public space for Frisbee golf. Loving it. Jim Lang is teed up for this one.
1: As we continue on into year two of pandemic life post-COVID-19, we're looking for different things to do when it comes to sports and activities and being active. And there's something new that we need to tell you about that's a pretty amazing coming out of Aurora. It's called Disc Golf play with a Frisbee. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by the facilities manager in Aurora, who played disc golf University. Todd Billow. Todd, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How about yourself? Good. Now, I remember playing uh, Frisbee football when I was in high school. Tell us about the origins of Frisbee golf, or disc golf.
7: Well, disc golf, it has been around uh, since the 70s, and it was um, started way back with wham Frisbee, uh, the design of... The actual disc golf baskets uh, was through a gentleman by the name of Ed Henrick. And generally in Canada, it kind of started back in the late 70s, early 80s, with a couple of courses being installed on Toronto Island, as well as in Centennial. And over the years, it has grown uh, a little bit in Canada. Uh, It's grown a little bit larger in uh, the U.S. and across the globe as well. But uh, recently, it has um, exploded uh, in Ontario, and courses are popping up all over the place.
1: Now, how were you introduced to the gaming university, and how long did it take for you to be hooked, as you say?
7: Uh, Well, I I played a lot of uh, ball golf, if I could call it that, uh, as a kid, and when I got to university, I was introduced to disc golf by some friends, and this uh, we started playing on uh, like an object course. So the course was set up using trees as the holes and different types of frisbees were used to uh, to play the game. And then when I finished university, I found uh, actually the course in Centennial in Etobicoke that, um, that actually just uh, got me <laughs> hooked, as one would say, um, because it actually had baskets and tee pads and it was kind of a full full course. So, From there, um,
1: I guess you could say the rest is history. Well, I mean, the amazing thing about it for me is it's a great opportunity to play a sport. You don't need to be incredibly strong to do it. Uh, It's something that everyone, male or female, can do it on an equal level. And it's inclusive for everybody. And it's outside in fresh air. To me, it's a win-win, especially for the younger generation, Todd. When We're trying to encourage them to get outside and enjoy the great outdoors. Uh, Absolutely, uh, Jim. It is a sport that anybody can play.
7: Uh, Since I've been playing for about 25 years now, I've met people from all walks of life, male, female, young, old. Um, My kids, although they don't play on a regular basis, uh, they do play every now and then. But it is something that can be enjoyed year-round. We play consistently through the winter. Uh, We play consistently throughout the day and the evening as well. So there is uh, an opportunity to get outside. Um, You know, it's a two, two two-and-a-half-hour round, so to speak, Um, but it's very casual. You can play at your own pace. Uh, A lot of the courses in Ontario, um, you do not have to book tea time, so you can just show up to the park and play um, as you see fit. And, uh, yeah, it is very inexpensive to play. Um, the cost of a Frisbee to play is between 10 to $20, and you can uh, use that disc uh, as long as you don't throw it into uh, a pond or a lake and lose it. But generally, the disc golf community is very good about um, getting lost Frisbees back or helping out those that are just being introduced to the sport with, uh, you know, here's a couple of discs to try. Um, So yeah, it is something that is accessible by
1: all. Well, speaking of Todd Billow on the feed, he's a, a longtime disc golf or frisbee golf player from the town of Aurora. And you're trying to convince the town to install a course in town, which I know once people would get onto it and get into it, would would really get into it like you have and be a big part of the disc golf community. What sort of response have you gotten from Mayor Tom Rackis and the people involved with the town of Aurora about doing something like this? Well,
7: when we uh, presented to the town council in early February, uh, I'm working with a company called Chainlink, and they are uh, part of a, a kind of a global group that, um, that promotes and helps to bring disc golf to different communities. And uh, the council was very accepting of the pre- presentation. They uh, seemed to uh, feel that it might be something the, the community in Aurora uh would be uh would take part in Uh, i know that the presentation was brought back to the rest of the the town staff um and i understand they're they're just uh kind of discussing it internally so at the moment we haven't heard anything back um but you know hopefully with more discussion they they'll look Mm -hmm. at the the benefits to the community for a course
1: and just for our our listeners a lot of people think golf and you think the massive piece of land you take for a, a traditional golf course, how much property are you talking about for a proper disc golf presentation or diff, disc golf setup? Well, there's different levels of disc golf
7: courses. There are smaller kind of nine hole introductory courses. And a couple of these you could see in the city of Toronto, uh, beaches, disc golf course or Maryland bell. And those have holes that range from, you know, hundred feet to 250 feet each. Um, to championship-level courses that have holes that uh, extend past uh, 900 feet. So it varies um, as to the piece of property. The disc golf course that you can install usually takes, you know, maybe a, a half of an acre to an acre per hole. But again, it's all based on the existing topography of the, uh, of the area, um, we, as in the disc golf community, like obstacles and like trees, and um, you know the the environmental impact for a course is very minimal because we we want to utilize what's already there. Um, you know we we want to ensure that we maintain um, the, the the outdoors uh, that so, it can be enjoyed.
1: Yeah, because basically what well. you're doing in disc golf is you're just using what nature has there in front of you. Exactly. This is this is a fantastic idea. Disc golf. Todd Bellow from the town of Aurora, facilities manager, a longtime disc golf player. I have to ask you, what's your best score playing frisbee golf in your career?
7: <laughs> uh, that's that's a good one. Um, I I don't want to. Yeah, I don't know if I can answer that, Jim. It's uh, it's been a long time. I'd say the best. Best score that I've probably ever had would be uh, a minus 17 out of 18
1: holes at, at a course. 17 under that par. Was a long time ago. Woo! 17 under par. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So. Okay, but you should be at TPC Sawgrass this weekend or getting ready for the Masters uh, in a facility like that where I really hope this happens. I think it's good for York Region, good for the town of Aurora. Uh, Anything like that which is low cost, low impact, accessible for everyone of all ages. They can get outside and do it, and no matter what your skill level, I think is the more we have things like that for people of all ages to get outside and get active, Todd, the better. So I really hope this happens. And all the best of luck to you. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I hope it happens as well. Take care, Todd. Take care.
2: If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com for the podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.